everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire. And all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up, and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Drew, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. Folks, for those of you who don't know, this is Drew Neimport, who was my former employer, uh, but also, in my mind, a hospitality icon, who someone who set the standard for how people should be treated in the dining room and also the way to grow a restaurant empire with positivity and a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you. Very nice of you, my man. Drew, welcome. It's good. It's good to catch up, man. It's been too long. That's true. Absolutely the case. <laughs> so, Drew, I, I kind of want to start at the beginning because, you know, I started with you at Rubicon, uh, which was with Tracy Desjardins, and that was '96. And you had already a prolific career uh, with your restaurants in New York at that time. But prior to that, how did it all start for you? Because you, you have a really amazing history in this industry, and I think you have a lot to share. So if you wouldn't mind kind of starting at the beginning, what made you decide, I'm going to start opening restaurants and, sure. and continue down this road? Sure. So, I, you know, I grew up in uh, Manhattan, New York City, um, born in 1955, and my mother was an actress a very prominent child actress in radio and later became um, a casting director and an agent, but she, she had a very good career in acting and very beautiful, nar almost narcissistic looking. And my father, who was 16 years older, um, he worked for the state liquor authority and the state liquor authority uh, in New York uh, licenses restaurants. So when we were kids, my father, was working with some of the great French restaurants, great Italian restaurants, German restaurants, coffee shops, cafeterias, you name it. And my father was a great guy. And he had a habit of being able to get the application from the bottom of the pile to the top of the pile, which the owners of these places, they were right off the boat. They were immigrants. They were so happy. Andy, bring your family. And so uh, my brother and I, just two kids in the family and uh, my mom and dad, we in the sixties be eating out and, like some of the great restaurants in New York City, the Pavillon, Cafe Chauveron, Cafe Argentoy, San Marino, San Marco, you name it. And I swear to you, Chris, it was like, for me, it was kismet because like when I was in these restaurants, first of all, I love food. And second of all, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This, you know, because like, listen, you know, if you grew up with a piano in your house and your parents, you know, point you towards music, maybe you gravitate towards music. Uh, I grew up eating in restaurants, eating great food. My my mother, by the way, was a terrible cook, terrible. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, so when, when we go to these restaurants, Chinese and everything, I mean, it was just, it was a, a, an experience. But I swear to you, all I was thinking about was one day I'm going to do this. One day this is going to be me. And it's, so it was like, like every time I go out, it would be like, you know, I was studying. I was, I was learning. And then, um, I went to a very good high school in New York City, Stuyvesant High School. It's a specialized high school. And um, one of the mothers, see, I wanted to go to a cooking school. I wanted to go to Switzerland. I wanted to go to Lausanne. I wanted to learn to be a chef. That's what I wanted to do. And one of the mothers came up to my mother and said, oh, did you know um, Cornell has a hotel school? And my mother's like, oh, I didn't know that. And anyway, uh, see, my mother comes to me, says, Woody Weisberg's mother tells me Cornell has a hotel school. And I'm thinking, oh, like Lausanne, you know, they teach cooking and all this kind of stuff. I look at my mother, I say, Mom, it's it's an Ivy League school. I've got an 85, you know, my grade, my grade's 85. I mean, I'm not getting into that school because Stuyvesant would pride itself graduating all these kids into, you know, grade schools. Anyway, long and the short, I got in. So it was one, uh, being exposed to all these incredible restaurants. And then two, I had an entree to an Ivy League school hotel school, Cornell School of Hotel Administration, uh, which from 1974 to 77, uh, I attended, um, worked on cruise ships, worked in great restaurants, everything, Chris, everything was about, uh, you know, learning something new every day, whether about food or wine or service. 
And uh, it led up to the point where you have to have the courage, obviously, uh, especially when you have no money. I had no real savings to open your own restaurant. Um, you know, when I was at Cornell, everybody was like, uh, oh, what are you going to do? You know, what, what are you going to do when you graduate? Oh, I'm going to open my own restaurant. Well, it's easier said than done. It took me about eight years before uh, I got that accomplished. So <clears throat> you're at Cornell. Right. In school, you go back to Manhattan, correct? Mm-hmm. And where were you there? Like, what was what was that next stepping stone for you? Because I think, you know, like you said, opening your restaurant took eight years from that point. And I think that's actually a really important thing because you have a lot of folks nowadays that think like, I'm going to graduate from school and I'm going to be the executive chef or I'm going to be, right. you know, the general manager or I'm going to be a master psalm. It takes years of building blocks to get to that point, right? Like right. you're saying, not only just the education, but the connections, knowing where things come from, how to make things work, all those little puzzle pieces. What were those next steps for you? Because I think it's really, really um, okay. So the, moment. The, the, one of the great things about Cornell was that um, I was 18 years old. I was walking in the halls of the school and there was a little uh, post, uh, a student had posted, I'm looking for six students experienced in Russian service to sail to the following ports. And it was Leningrad, Dublin, Oslo, Bergen, uh, Copenhagen, Stockholm. And I had never been anywhere, never. And I had also never worked as a waiter, ever. <laughs> Russian service, you know, Russian service was kind of like banquet service where instead of putting food on plates, you put it on trays and then you spoon, you know, fork and spoon the, the food from a platter to a plate like you see in a banquet. That was Russian service. But anyway, I called this guy up. He says, Are you, do you have experience? I say, oh, yeah, absolutely. And he hired me. And six of us set sail on the MS Vista Fjord in 1974, summer of 74. And let me tell you something. You're working in a 600-seat dining room, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, seven days a week. Sometimes you're working uh, midnight snacks. Sometimes you're doing afternoon tea as well. And that's, the, that's an education. That's an amazing education. And over the time that I was at Cornell, I went back about 15 times, um, you know, all, all over Northern Europe and Scandinavia. I went to the Caribbean during the summers. Um, you know, Christmas cruises always went to the Caribbean. And, um, you know, when I first got on the ship, Chris, I did not even know how to carry a tray. So the kitchen uh, was like a veritable football field. The, 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 uh, the, the dining room, I'm sorry, was a veritable football field. The kitchen was downstairs by escalator. So when I'm carrying a tray, I'm carrying a tray like this, two hands, um, and everyone's carrying the tray over their head, you know, with three fingers or, you know, like, you, you know, you carry a tray over your head. <laughs> and they, they outed me like on the first night. They knew I was like, you know, the least experienced. Plus, I was like the only, and there was one other American guy out of 60 waiters. So it's like, you know, they made my life fucking miserable most of the time. But again, I saw food that was so unbelievable. Keep this in mind. Three meals a day, 600 people. And they're serving this absolutely first class food. Very classic, obviously. Mostly Austrians in the kitchen, but the food was just amazing. So this was the part of the education that Cornell afforded me. One summer, I worked at Maxwell's Plum. And Maxwell's Plum, actually, there was a Maxwell's Plum in San Francisco in yep. Giardilly Square. It was short-lived. But Maxwell's Plum in New York was an absolute phenomenal, fantastic restaurant. Iconic. And in, uh, unbelievable. It had this huge menu, like 150 items in the kitchen that was like not very big. And I, I worked there as a steward, and I learned so much there. And then in 1976, the owner, Warner Leroy, son of Mervyn Leroy, who did The Wizard of Oz, he's, he opens a uh, tavern on the green in Central Park. And I, I, you know, I was part of the, the opening of that. And, you know, I saw all this stuff. And years later, I went to work there, actually, which was another an, an unbelievable experience. So look, what I'm going to tell you, Chris, is so I graduate Cornell in 1977. I'd worked on all the cruise ships. I'd worked at Maxwell's Plum. Recruiters come up to Cornell. So Hyatt came up, Rock Resorts came up, Western International came up. Nobody offered me a job. I had no job offer. So I went back on the cruise ship, come off the cruise ship. The guy from Maxwell's Plum calls me up and he says, hey, listen, you know, uh, we have a job, 300 bucks a week, assistant restaurant director. I'll take it. 
I, I started working there. Great, great, great experience that I parlayed into working at the Tavern on the Green, which was, you know, I when I started, I think they were doing about 15 million. When I left, they were doing 32 million. And it was really a proving grounds for me. It proved <laughs> I could manage, you know, 100 waiters and busboys and all that kind of stuff. And then, so honestly. For, for a lot of folks, Drew, give, give, yeah. there's a lot of folks that don't know the importance of Tavern on the Green. Um, as a young cook, you know, I know. Uh, when I was coming up through the system, like Tavern right. on the Green was this iconic restaurant in, in the park. You know, can you give right. the, the the listeners like a, a, a an understanding of the size and what was going on there? Because the food that was coming out of that kitchen was above and beyond. And it's yeah. location and it's... Yeah, I mean, here's what the problem is. In 1934, the space where Tavern on the Green was, was a sheepfold. It housed sheep. And then that's why the the huge grounds right opposite Tavern of the Green are called the Sheep Meadow, and where they've had Simon and Garfunkel concerts and, you know, all these great concerts in the Sheep Meadow. Then there was a, a, a commissioner of parks by the name of Robert Moses who created the Tavern on the Green, and it was first run by Restaurant Associates, which is, you know, is even around today. But Restaurant Associates ran it very corporately, and but it was a huge space. For instance, well, back then it was it was designed differently, but it was a huge space with lots of banquets and things like that. In 1976, when Warner takes it over, Warner Leroy takes it over, he builds a room called the Crystal Room. I mean, Chris, it was the most gorgeous room, totally glass, uh, all glass with chandeliers. I mean, it was it was like dining in a Christmas cake or a birthday cake. I'm sorry, and then. There was another room called the Elm Room with Elm Wood and that. So each of those rooms probably held about 250 seats. That's 500 seats. Then they had private dining for probably another 600. So I'll give you an example. On Mother's Day at Tavern on the Green, we would do 3,000 covers. We would do 3,000 covers. And then, you know, like like I would serve like 1,200 people on a Saturday night, wake up and do 1,500 brunches. I mean, it was like like really nuts. The food, see, Warner Leroy thought you could serve thousands of people three-star food. That's where he made his mistake. So every time, uh, one, the, one of the great lessons I learned at, at Tavern was he would hire these people through headhunters. So he got the chef of the Connaught, Daniel Dunas. Oh, that didn't work. Then he got the chef of Commander's Palace, Gerard Dabouy. That guy was an alcoholic. Where's Where's Gerard? He's at his. He's in the office. Oh, by the bar. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. You know. Then he hired. You know. Um, it, it was one. It was one guy after another, and they were all like at the end of their careers. They were resumes, obviously. Nobody, nobody uh, could pull it together. But we 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 managed to survive. We served thousands of covers. It was again great proving grounds. But you know what happened? Um, I jumped out of there, and what did I decide to do? I started to work in these French restaurants. So I worked at Le Perigord, La Reserve, uh, uh, La Grenouille, and um, uh, Le Regence with Daniel Belloud, actually, in 1984. Iconic. These are iconic. Yeah, these are the great restaurants. These are the restaurants. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the ones that set New York apart from right. And for folks they that dominated. don't know, like, every during that time the chefs would immigrate from france from switzerland and go to new york they were brought to new york to open these restaurants for these families that had decided they wanted to have the taste of europe in manhattan so exactly. these were the proving grounds the changing dynamic for food in the u.s exactly right exactly right. and i was i was a captain um, you know, the, in these French restaurants, they would have the captain and the tuxedo, then you had the waiters, and then you had the busboys. It's kind of militaristic in some ways, but I did not even speak uh, fluent French. So for me, some of these restaurants, you know, people would start to speak to me in French. That's how French they were. And uh, so I had to fudge it, but I, I, had, I knew perfect menu French. I didn't understand, you know, I didn't know how to speak the language, actually. But um, here I was by the table and I was hearing the customers, like, I want my lamb pink i want my duck crisp i mean i could hear you know directly and so even when i opened my first restaurant you know i used that information you know i printed on the menu if you can't if people want a crisp duck and you can't give them crisp like that's another story but the 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 point is so i jumped out i was making very good money when i worked at uh 
in management, but I, I made better money actually as a waiter and making tips and whatnot. And then, um, you know, hey, listen, it, it, the whole thing was um, in 1983, um, I ran the New York Marathon. And um, so I was in great shape. I was running. And I would, on Sundays, I'd read the New York Times, the business opportunities. And I saw a classified that said, 1,500 square feet for $1,500 a month, lower Manhattan, West Broadway. And I was like, wow, West Broadway, that's a very interesting thoroughfare. Um, 1,500 a month is $18,000. I can afford that. So I I got I went outside, I, I jogged down there. And on this misbegotten street on West Broadway, it was not a West Broadway in Soho, it was West Broadway in Tribeca, which was kind of uncharted you know, territory. People didn't know about it. But um, I met, I looked at the space and I said, you know something, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sign the lease for this space. And I, I didn't have a pot to piss and I didn't have any money. So I go out to raise money uh, for this restaurant, which by the way, was going to be called the Silverado Trail because I was so into like California wines. And I saw, you know, Larry Forgione had just opened the American place and Jonathan Waxman was being successful also. And I said, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this California. So I'm still working at La Grenouille. And um, one day I'm pouring a bottle of Le Maraché, Marquis de la Guiche. Somebody ordered this great bottle of wine. And as I'm pouring the wine, I look at, I look at it. And I, I swear to you, it was like a sign. It was like glowing. It was gold. And I, it's like, why am I going to try to re recreate the wheel? I've worked in all these French restaurants. I'm going to open Montrachet. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open a place called Montrachet. Now, here's the most interesting thing. So in 1983, I run the New York Marathon. And the next day, the next day, I get a call from uh, a guy named Tom Margatai. He's the owner of the Four Seasons Restaurant in New York, which at the time was arguably like the best restaurant in America, you know, the Four Seasons, right? So he goes, uh, I hear you're a family man. And like, I'm not married. I have no kids. I said, what is he talking about? Joe Baum tells me you're a family man. You know, this guy tells me you're a family man. So I guess he was talking about like this idea of, you know, being, you know, a team player, working for restaurants. And anyway, I go to the Four Seasons and I meet Alex Von Bitter, who's one of the great restaurateurs. And, um, you know, he was a partner with Julian Nicolini. There were two owners, Paul Covey, Tom Margatai, two underlings who eventually bought the restaurant from Covey and Margatine. So anyway, the point is I'm trying to make here is very simple. So they said to me, um, in order for you to work here, we all have to agree. If somebody doesn't like you, you can't work here. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. So, you know, all these interviews are like Alex, you know, I can tell he likes me and Margatine is the one who pulled me in and, I'm about to go to California. This is 1983. Spago was at its, its, its height. And I was going to have a trip that started in La Jolla and San Diego and worked my way all the way up to San Francisco, where I would eat at uh, Campton Place. And I would eat at, uh, you know, Chez Panisse and all these great places. And I'd eat in Spago. And so when I meet with Paul Covey, he goes like this. He goes, Temecula. Temecula. And I'm saying, What's it? You know, he sounded like a, he, he was Transylvanian. So he sounded like Bela Lugosi. I mean, it was like, you know, I thought he was speaking in, in, uh, in vampire or something, but he didn't even interview me. He just basically started telling me about the wine country and Temecula, which is where I was headed and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, here's the short. I go, I go on this trip on the last day, the last day I had a reservation for lunch at a place called Sutter 500. It was a restaurant on Sutter Street in San Francisco that uh, Roger Verger did the consultancy and yeah. Hubert Keller, Hubert Keller was the chef, okay? And the reason I go there is because when I was working at La Reserve in New York, one of my fellow captains says, I, I know the sous chef at this place. His name is David Boulay. Um, you know, when, go to this place, okay? Go to this place. You're going to have a great meal. So that morning, what's, I was saying, What's really saying, amazing, what's really yeah. amazing is you're the tie-in between San Francisco and what you did, right. uh, like Verger, you know, uh, Hubert Keller being brought to San Francisco to run the restaurant for Verger, right. I mean, which then led to Fleur de Lis. Like these right. like pivotal, pivotal 
very important. Not only in San Francisco, but in Manhattan and what you're doing. Like this is so crazy. Most folks in San Francisco don't even know that Roger Verger had a restaurant here and that's how Hubert came here. Exactly. Well, the history, unfortunately, this is totally lost these days. Well, anyway, I I, I jogged. I I was staying at Knob Hill at the Stanford Court. And I didn't know San Francisco had these like ridiculous streets with, you know, mountainous, you know, climbs and whatever. So I made my way to the Golden Gate Bridge. I jogged all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge. And on the bridge, I think there was a payphone. I called my wife and, well, she wasn't my wife then. And I called her and they said, listen, we're supposed to have lunch at this place, but we have dinner at Campton Place with Bradley Ogden. So we're going to eat very light. When we go to Sutter 500, we're going to eat very light. So we go to Sutter 500. Boulay comes out of the kitchen. The place was empty. And he goes, um, I'm going to I'm going to cook a menu for you. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> you know, back then, though, it was a novelty if somebody would cook for you. Not like today, which is like, oh, my God, you know, we're in for a long night. Um, but anyway, what proceeded was the most delicious, well-crafted, unbelievably pretty food I had ever seen. So when I when it was my last day in, um, San, you know, in, in, on the trip, San Francisco, and we got back and I called Boulay and I said, listen, you know, I want to open my own restaurant. You're like, your food was unbelievable. Would you consider it? And he had worked in New York at Vienna 79, which was a very, was a four-star restaurant. He worked at a couple of places. He knew Daniel Balud. He knew all the, the people I knew. Um, and basically me, we made a deal to do this because when, I told you when I was jogging, I found the space at 1500 square feet, 1500 a month. I signed the lease and no money. When I went to get the money, nobody wanted to invest in me. So I took 50,000 of my own savings, 50,000 from the small business administration, 50,000 from uh, one uh, partner who I had worked with at another restaurant. And, and we set about opening uh, Montrachet for 150,000, which even back then was not enough money, but we did it. And, you know, Boulay started cooking. And, and I mean, Boulay's food was just unbelievable. I mean, like, even today, this is 38 years ago. It was 1985. Today, I, I swear to God when I tell you this, Chris, nobody cooks th- this food, you know. But um, we had just one simple problem, which is a problem that a lot of chefs have. Uh, we couldn't get the food out of the kitchen. I mean, the kitchen was, <laughs> yeah, you know, the kitchen was small, you know, and he had a crew. Um, but he was cooking a la menu, and he was cooking very... Um, you know, he's cooking beautiful dishes and, and there weren't many corners that were being cut. And in those days, not like today, today you can have a menu with like six apps, six entrees. Back then it was, you know, Spago had 10 apps and 10 entrees. That's we all copied. At least I did. I said, if, if it's good for Spago, why wouldn't it be good for us? So it was 10 apps and 10 entrees. And, and those extra dishes, obviously, you know, mise en place and all that kind of thing, you know, it, it, it adds up. But the point was with Boulay, you know, um, seven weeks, seven weeks after we opened, the food critic for the New York Times bestowed upon us three stars. Now, you have to understand, Chris, you know what I was charging for three courses? $16. Oh, my one God, Drew. Six. One oh six. My God. How did you so, pay bills? <laughs> right? No, no, but listen to this. Listen to this. My rent was very, very cheap. And, and, uh, payroll back then wasn't what it is today. And anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, is and now my dogs are going to start barking, but it's all right. We won't edit out my dogs, I don't think. But um, uh, stop. <laughs> anyway, the point I'm trying to make is very simple, which is. The point I'm trying to make is that. Um, you know, we, we did the impossible, but when Boule could not get the food out of the kitchen, that was a big problem with me. And then the other thing, which I think you're aware of probably because you have a lot of friends who are chefs, you know, every, everything about what I've done in my career, I, I, you know, I, I believe it's about character. I think people who have character, that's the most important thing. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. The, um, the character in, 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 in terms of um, you know, so so here, you know, two young guys, Boulay and I were young guys. I was 29. And, um, you know, basically, uh, he, he he all these people start because the review was like David Boulay this, David Boulay that. Oh, the owner drew the point. You know, I got like one mention in the thing. I got one mention. So uh, 
you know, he basically wanted to take the three stars, put them in his bag, walk across the street, bring everybody with him, and and fuck me. That was it. I mean, it was like, I mean, this is, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was like, I I had achieved something that nobody else achieved at the age of 29, three stars in the New York Times. It's like winning the lottery without being able to collect the cash. It was just the beginning. And he didn't want to earn it. And he just wanted to go across the street. So unfortunately, 13 months later, I had to fire him, replace him with a guy from the West Coast who, you know, carried on. And then uh, I, I maintained the three-star rating for 22 years at Montrachet. I mean, you've had a, iconic... It's story. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, you've had iconic chefs go through that kitchen, right? Um, amazing. Amazing chefs have gone through that kitchen. You know, it's like... Yeah, Deborah Pons. Well, Tracy, Tracy Desjardins, Desjardins. at, 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 at because she was our sous chef there. So when when it was time in 1994 to do Rubicon, there was only one person I had in mind for Rubicon. Then that was Tracy Desjardins. I knew, you know, she had worked for Joaquin Splichow. And, um, you know, I knew she was she would be ready for it. And she was. She did a fantastic job. But 1994 also was a seminal seminal moment for me because I also opened Nobu in 1994. And in fact, at the James Beard Awards that year, both Nobu and Rubicon were the nominees for Best New Restaurant in America, which Nobu won. Uh, well, I think uh, Tracy I mean, won Rising Star Chef, actually, that year. Yep, that's correct. I mean, it, I think about those times, like you had Tribeca Grill, right? Right. As well, mm-hmm. which, which was so many great, great chefs have gone through there i mean i spent a week with you there i you know when i came on board with you to go open the coach house well which i was at rubicon and then i went out to the coach house i came to new york and got to you know trail at all these restaurants i mean it was a it was an eye-opening experience for me to see the difference and what was going on you see chris i think this is a perfect moment to explain that my modus operandi was always about the talent in other words you know, when my mother went from being an actress to a casting director, her job was basically to cast somebody in a role that they were going to succeed in, that they would be perfect for. So for and, and, and they would go through literally sometimes hundreds of people to find the one person that would could do the job for them. In my case, like guys like you, it's like, you know, there you're working at the restaurant. You have to be able to identify, first of all, you have to have the acumen or the knowledge or the experience to be able to identify somebody can cook better than somebody else. Not everybody cooks well. And then, you know, ride that pony. I mean, do the best that you can in terms of, uh, you know, like giving that, giving people opportunities. And then what my whole career uh, obviously was about that. It was about giving people, you know, the opportunity to be successful. And, you know, I, I have a, when I turned 50, which is in 2000, I, I, I sent an invitation, which is like a family tree, and it shows all the chefs and it shows, you know, all the restaurants. But it's it's ridiculous. And it's 23 years old. I mean, I, the, love, the, that. I, I love that thing. Yeah. That is. And then, yeah, I mean, it was it was incredible because, I you know, my birthday party, which also was an incredible event, was at a, a, a place I was supposed to do this virgin spa with Richard Branson and all this crap. You know, that, that, that's the other thing in life. You know, there's a lot of BS artists and, you know, they, they they waste your time and they do all these kind of things. They promise you the moon. And, you know, but anyway, the, the, the bottom line is, look, I'm not a chef. I'm a restaurateur. And the restaurateur really is like a, you know, it's an afterthought. Not most Most restaurateurs have. They're just business people who have money who call themselves restaurateurs. I think, you know, the, the by and large, there's a handful of us. There's maybe, you know, Richie Melman or Stephen Starr, Keith McNally, you know, guys like that. You know, we have we have at least worked in places or opened enough places or worked with enough people that we have a base of knowledge. We have a we have a certain je ne sais quoi. But, you know, other than that, you know, you have all these like real estate people in the in the food business and, you know, the hotel people. You know, what I found the most, Chris, I don't know if your experience is this, but I think the hotel people know the least about what we do. You know, like the general <laughs> managers. Are, yeah, I mean, they all they all want to insinuate themselves in, in the equation. They don't know anything. You know? Well, that's why they they want to. There's definitely that world, right, where there's the hotel folks yeah. reaching out to you, Drew, saying we want you to open a restaurant on our property because we don't know how to run it. Right. But then we're going to run it when you put it there, which yeah, turns yeah, into yeah. a backfiring situation. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, I think about it now. It's like, 
you know, I always, my philosophy was always strike while the kettle's hot. But it took me a long time because, especially in New York, Chris, the, 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 the pervasive uh, mentality was uh, Andre Soltner at Lutece was, you know, you don't take a night off. You, 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 you stay at the stove. When, you're, when the restaurant's open, you work there. I thought as a restaurateur I had advantage. I'm not cooking the food, so I could do other things. I could um, promote the chef. I could, I could, I could expand, and that's what I did. But at the beginning, you know, it was I was very conservative. Then I would watch, and I would watch the deals that I I decided I couldn't do. I would watch them being performed by people I didn't have that much respect for. They weren't doing a good job, and then I decided I created Myriad which, you know, the, the definition of myriad is endless and countless. And, 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 that, and that's basically what I did. I mean, I, 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 but I was very careful. I was very careful of what I chose. And, um, you know, and, you know that, and at, the, at the end of the day, I, I really don't think I had too many bad decisions. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. I, at the end I mean, of the day, most of the decisions were good decisions. You know? But I mean, you were willing to take a chance. And I think that's also... You built the legs, just like you trained for the marathon, Drew. You built yourself right. up to be able to run the marathon. You did the same thing to get to where you were felt confident enough to open Montrachet with $150,000. You can't eat, like, that doesn't exist, right? Like that, without right. that right. building right. foundation of education, expertise, listening to your guests, at all these restaurants, you really set yourself up for success for the long haul, not for the flash in the pan. And that's exactly. always inspired me about you, Drew, is that you pushed that on us as line cooks. You pushed that on us as young management. You were always pushing us to better ourselves. You always okay. pushed us to learn, to try. When you would come to town, you were like, what are you working on? Let's try this. What 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 are you doing? What are you tasting? What are you playing with? You gave us that freedom to bend your ear, which a lot of times we would have never had that opportunity prior. That's interesting. You know, it, it's, it's funny because, you know, now that I'm in the twilight of my career, and I joke about it, but, you know, I, I don't remember all that much but you know again what i do remember is i always felt it was important you know to to build a, a group of you know caring people good character um you know and then obviously you wanted to serve food that you were proud of always high quality food um you know that's that ultimately that's the key i mean ultimately that's the key great food and I mean, and it it's happened. I mean, so let's talk about, you know, not well, no, let, let, let me hit on Nobu for two seconds. Because sure. Nobu is a really important moment in my career because today there's 54 Nobus around the world. Yes. And they're Nobu hotels. And arguably, like, Nobu is, like, just in a, it's extraordinary what's happened. I mean, it really is. And, and the reality of Nobu is that you know, De Niro, when we're building the Tribeca Grill, obviously Robert De Niro is my partner at the Tribeca Grill. So basically the ascension is I opened Montrachet in 1985. There's a million things that people want me to do. But um, Robert De Niro comes into the restaurant, comes into Montrachet, and he offers the opportunity to do Tribeca Grill, which, of course, I did. But Robert De Niro, in a moment of bad casting, is like, oh, well, why don't we have Nobu? I have a friend who's a chef. He could be the chef of Tribeca Grill. Nobu Matsui said, I'm thinking like, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, and Japanese guy is not going to be, you know, the chef of the American restaurant. Okay. So Nobu came, you know, and he looked at, looked at the 200 seats. He was working at his own restaurant, Matsui, which had 45 seats. And he, you know, he said, maybe one day I'll open a nice sushi bar with you. And that was that. But I saw the friendship between Nobu. I saw the friendship Robert De Niro and Nobu had. And uh, an opportunity availed itself literally on the corner, right up the block from Tribeca Grill, down the block from Montrachet. And, uh, you know, I signed the lease uh, at a, a bankruptcy proceeding. And, uh, you know, we, we wound up uh, doing uh, this Nobu with no bar. And in fact, think of the irony of this. My father, who had worked for the State Liquor Authority, when we opened Nobu, we have no liquor license. And I used to joke that it was called No Booze. Because, 
you know, we had no liquor license. <laughs> and, and anyway, you know, so that people would have to bring uh, sake or whatever they would get run from the corner uh, liquor store, you know, it was around the corner from the restaurant. But, you know, Nobu uh, was very, very innovative. The, the Japanese restaurants that existed in New York were literally only for the Japanese. The Japanese didn't want us as customers. So you had sushi screens and tatami rooms and you sit on the floor and all this craziness that are not custom to American, you know, Western ideas, you know, dining. And, uh, you know, I made it accessible, which is what I do. I made like, like I make a table comfortable. I make, you know, I, I choose chairs because they're comfortable. I don't choose chairs because they're fancy looking or, you know, attractive, which a lot of designers. And by the way, I would say this, you know, it's like, People used to love these ugly restaurants. Then people like David Rockwell and Sam Lapata and Adam Tahani became, you know, these designers of, of the moment. And and then the rest is history. Restaurants had to be facades, and sometimes the facade overwhelms the quality of the food. Let's face it. But but at the end of the day, what Nobu um, opened in New York, it changed almost everything. And then we had an opportunity in London to go to London which initially Nobu was hesitant to go to London, but, you know, I convinced them to go to London. And then we opened, now we had two places doing great. We just celebrated 25 years in London, uh, 30 years in New York, 30 years from the open. And and now it's like they'd open a Nobu under a manhole cover. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> it, it just goes on and on and on. And here's the one lesson about Nobu. The menu in 1994 to today is almost exactly the same. So think of how innovative he must have been 30 years ago for the same dishes to hold up 30 years later. I mean, that's extraordinary. I, and then as time. yeah, I mean, completely ahead of his time. I mean, you know, I was yeah. fortunate enough before I headed out to open the coach house on Martha's Vineyard with you. Uh, I got to spend a few days in the kitchen there and, it was inspiring. I think oh, when I was there, uh, Morimoto was running the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Morimoto obviously was with us, and his career is fantastic. So I remember being in the kitchen and just being totally overwhelmed. I wasn't allowed to touch any fish. I just could sit there in the corner and watch them butcher. I mean, it was just this revelatory experience as a young cook because it was all about technique and these like ingredients that I'd never even seen before. And it was, I mean, God, Drew, what year was that? Like 90. Well, that was, yeah. I, that was, you were probably around 95, six, seven, something like that. It was early. We opened, yeah. Yeah. We opened in 94. So that was, that was the, it was gotta was, be 95 because we, we went out to the beach. Yeah. Right. I mean, that exactly. was, it was such an interesting experience to be able to see that. And then two days later, go down the street and work at Tribeca. Yeah. Well, talk Tribeca, about two you know, polar opposites, right? And, and Exactly right. Exactly right. And Tribeca, you know, today is 33 years in business, 33 years. And, you know, that's the one thing I would say about my career is a lot of people open a lot of restaurants, but who can say they still have their first restaurant 38 years later? Who can say they have their second restaurant 33 years later? Who can say they have their third restaurant 30 years later i mean it's like you know nobody can say that i'm sorry you know nobody can say that that's that's the that's the big difference so there was a um i recall also spending time at uh oh man i'm trying to get the name right mina was the chef there it was uh, layla. layla layla yes yeah man, does that that was a that was ahead of its time because like now you can see like alan shaya and uh uh, Michael Salamanoff and yep. all these uh, Israeli guys are really hitting terrific, you know, uh, terrific restaurants around the country, uh, the Israeli food. Um, but we, that was like, you know, we, we served the meze and the flatbread. It was and, amazing. I mean, uh, it was, it, it, we had a belly dancer, which was, she was gorgeous. And, and that was fun. And uh, the problem with that was in not in, at nine eleven came and, you know, we were a Middle Eastern restaurant and, and uh, there was so much uncertainty of yep. surrounding 9-11 that I shut down for a while. And then I reopened it as Layla, the Mediterranean restaurant, but it never had the cachet that it had when uh, when we first got going. That's the problem. 
I mean, you you really pioneered the Tribeca district. You set it apart, and so many people followed after you. And yeah. when you started to expand out, like, what was that experience for you expanding out of Manhattan, right? I mean, because that's a big deal when you're yeah. not able – because that was the big thing for you. You Your office was above Tribeca. You were able to walk from space to space to space. Yeah. People yeah. saw you in the dining room. You connected with your guests. What was that change like for you as an owner operator to branch out? Okay, here comes Rubicon, right? Uh, in San Francisco, there's the coach house on Martha's Vineyard. You did some things right. in the Midwest. There was these right. openings that were happening. How was that for you personally? But also how did you start to deal with that? Because you didn't have that. I can walk to each door and check in on everybody. Right. I mean, you know, keep in mind, even, you know, when I was a young kid and going out to those restaurants and then going to Cornell, the model for me was always, you know, Joe Baum, who created Windows on the World and the Rainbow Room. Previously, he was the guy who helped to create the Four Seasons, which I spoke about, and all these other concepts. The the, the restaurant associates, you know, they had, they had everything from uh, Zoom Zooms, which was a like a, a broadburst kind of a fast food place. I mean, they, their concepts were many varied, always interesting, always clever. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to open a bunch of restaurants. My real opportunity came with W Hotels. Um, I think that was 96, 97. Um, Michelle Dijon was our chef at Heartbeat. Yep. I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I was I was on the West Coast and I was watching a TV thing where Michael Eisner had just had open uh, heart surgery or bypass surgery. And he was talking about how a healthy diet and you can get better with food and all this nonsense. And I, I was like, that's it, man. Let's, you know, um, they they kept on telling us about the W in New York was going to be an urban oasis. Like David Rockwell is very poetic about when he designs things and urban oasis. So I, I, I designed this place called Heartbeat. And Michelle Nishan was a real hippie. He was like great chef, good friend of Jacques Pepin today. But but back then, I you know, his marching orders were let's do healthy food. And, you know, he might have overdone it a little bit. It was, you know. Um, most of the time I was used to opening restaurants and the critics would come in and we were the darling of the critics. And I, I remember we had a tea sommelier. Yep. We had a tea sommelier at the W and that was the most pretentious thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, I, that certainly wasn't my idea, but I went with it and, you know, it was just too stupid. But the, the point is, is that, you know, I, then I did uh, earth and ocean in Seattle yeah. And the two chefs there, Maria Hines, Jonathan uh, Sundstrom, they both got James Beard Awards as like the best chefs while, while they were working at Earth and Ocean. And um, then, you know, in San Francisco, we had a little bit of influence, but there was a W in San Francisco. I forget the name of the one that was in San Francisco. But so that enabled us to go outside. Now, you're right. We didn't have infrastructure. So, we, you know, these are these are strategic management deals where we would send somebody like Chris Cosentino to, you know, Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket or wherever. And, uh, you know, and then we maybe send a manager as well. And then for me, what was a kick in the butt, I loved it was to be able to travel to these places and experience uh, the difference. And, and, and quite frankly, look, before uh, hotels would hire guys like me, what were they doing? They'd hire a, a, an employee, a food and beverage director, uh, or a corporate food and beverage regular, and then they they create these concepts for you know their hotels. So the, the the you know if the if the food and beverage director was talented or you know maybe they'd come up with some good concepts, but most of them were very generic. And hotel dining rooms basically sucked. I mean they they weren't good. So we bring people like us in. You know we bring talent. We bring a, a certain je ne sais quoi, and it was it it worked, and it works to, to today. I mean it. It still works to today. So, but um, it's so funny. Yeah, but, like, yeah, but, you know, I I think about you know Earth and Ocean. I remember going to Heartbeat, visiting right. Michelle Nishan, hanging right. out with John Mooney, who oh, I worked with at Red Sage back in the day. Oh, you know, okay. Seeing all these folks and all this, you know, you had Pat Trauma who was out uh, on on Nantucket, who then came and hang with me on Martha's Vineyard. Right, uh -huh. uh, the white yeah. elephant. Right, is that what the name of it was on on Nantucket? I think I think that's correct. Yes, yes. So, I mean, these are 
these were pivotal times. I think this was the game changer in the industry because these things were all new. This wasn't really happening like it is now. There wasn't, you know, John George restaurants popping up and in hotels around the country. You were like this catalyst that was moving this needle forward and giving young talent opportunity in new environments. I mean, it was a really game-changing time. Yeah, I mean, the most amazing thing to me, Chris, is that so many years later, and they're my age, you know, you have Daniel Balut, you have John George Von Gerichten, and once in a while, Eric Repair, and that's pretty much it. Like, a lot of these chefs who are prominent in their own individual restaurants have risen to a certain level, let's just say like Michael White or um, uh, Andrew Carmelini. Um, I can name quite a few, but they just never, like the, the, the press doesn't elevate them to where John George and Daniel Balud are. And now I would tell you, I love John George, I love Daniel Balud, but they're kind of on autopilot. Because unlike Nobu, which has 54 restaurants in different places, but they're all kind of pretty much bespeak the same cuisine, you know, well, John George to a a different, he does different things, different names, different concepts, and to varying degrees of success, you know? And then you have Daniel Balloon, and it's the same thing, but there's a lot of autopilot. So, so like, you know, if you go to a Daniel Balloon restaurant, you figure, well, how bad can it be? But if you get, if you don't have a good experience, it's like, well, what was the point here? You know, it's like, you know, Daniel Balloon, well, guess what? Daniel Blue is backed by, you know, a multi-million, billion-dollar real estate company, and so is John George, a Howard Hughes company. So, you know, they just spent $200 million on the, the tin building. I don't think you've seen it yet, but the tin building is all the way on the South Street Seaport. It's a magnificent it's, – it's a masterpiece. I mean, anybody in the food industry who goes there is going to say, well, this is an unbelievable, beautiful market, beautiful restaurants. But, you know, nobody cares. I mean, it's like it's like too off the beaten path kind of thing so far anyway. And it, this uh, thing must be. I've heard it's, uh, it's similar to like a French version of, of Italy or. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just like, you know, then you have Little Spain, which is Jose, which is. Uh, yeah, that's 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 terrific, too. But, you know, when I go into these places, Chris, you know, all I see payroll. <laughs> it's like <laughs> everything. Is separate. No, I mean, it's like and, and listen, that that's the. That's the boogeyman right now. Like, you know, chefs can control food costs to a certain degree. Rents are impossible. So that's that's a, that's a, a problem right now. But payroll. I mean, everybody's demanding so many so much so much higher wages. And then the, it's really not the wages so much as the overtime, because as you know, we all work. Everybody works six days, and everyone is into massive overtime. So when it's time and a half. I mean, pretty much now the restaurants run at fifty percent payroll. That's fifty percent of your cost is payroll, which is crazy. and that's nuts. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think about people are talking. You know, new restaurant opening. Let's just say, let's just utilize Montrachet as an original space to open nowadays, right? Right. Right. That, in my mind, you know, and and I would, I mean, it could be in Manhattan where you are right now, right? Or right. it could be in San Francisco. You're talking about a $2.5 million build out to get things to to even build out, ready to go with funding to open the doors, including, you know, like first two months payroll, right? That's 100, 100% correct. 100% and I think correct. that is so intimidating for a lot of folks right now to think about how can we make this work? unless you're really good at DIY, which that isn't always going to fly either because right. the expectation now of a restaurant is so much higher, right? right. Um, especially for the small guy. If you have a name, the expectation is through the ceiling and it's it's some somewhat almost unattainable to hit that without using that amount of dollars to open. Right. Well, that's why you have these real estate companies investing so much money in what they think will be like uh, an attraction to when they build these condos in the, in, you know, in the South Street Seaport that the, that they built this, you know, food court that uh, is going to be the attraction. We'll see what happens. But the amount of money, you know, look, look, 
I think you're a little bit like this uh, as well. You, you, I do not want to be beholden to the money. I, I don't want to be like, you know, I, I take, if somebody gives me money to open a restaurant, my responsibility is to repay them back their money. It's to, it, it, not only to repay their investment, but obviously if the place is successful, they should make a dividend. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't happen, I feel bad. I, I, I honestly feel bad. So, so it's this like goes back to okay. integrity. This goes back to that, what we talked about earlier. Character, exactly. Right. Character, exactly. integrity. So, you want, so. you'd never want to owe anyone. You want to make them feel welcome. You want to make them feel good. You want to make them feel like they made a good decision in trusting you. Right. Exactly. And that go that speaks volumes, Drew. And I think that to me is like the hardest part now for a lot of folks is because a lot of the money nowadays that is being thrown like you said at, at restaurateurs or young chefs is funny money and in and, and i don't use that lightly because it's you know is it to build a neighborhood for then said you know giant developer to transfer that neighborhood and completely turn the whole thing over into multi-million dollar condos so they win in the long haul of course it is that's what I, it is restaurants are and always have sought out the lowest rent neighborhoods to be able to succeed, right? Because at that point, that, it was the biggest. That, that, that's the reason I was in Tribeca, 100%. And, 100%. you know, and I always say this to people. I was like, you need to look at one night's service should cover the nut for rent. That's it. In a month, one night should cover the nut for rent. And I try to explain this to people and they look at me and they go, what are you talking about? And I was like, uh, if you can't cover rent in one night service, a non-Friday, Saturday night service, then there's problems. I got you. That makes sense. I like right? that. And I try to, and then we look at these big picture things and, and every neighborhood that has had a restaurant, let's use Montrachet, look at Tribeca, what's happened. It is the epitome of what we're talking about right now. Multiple new restaurants, condos, the area completely redeveloped and changed. And that's happening all over the country. Right. So the developers caught wind of that a bunch of years ago and now they're jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, look, the, the inescapable truth is that the real estate, uh, especially in a place like Manhattan, which is a small island, is so, you know, it it's it, there's only so much let's put it that way so I, with SF, I, right we're seven by seven we can't go anywhere either so yeah it's, Listen, it's, i went i went the other day to the corner bar it's called ignacio matos he's an uruguayan chef he's he has a stella he's got a couple of places his food is very styled very different than most people's food and this place is on the outskirts of chinatown i mean totally misbegotten area and and my guest is telling me oh this is the hottest place in new york now i was like what are you talking about i mean because i grew up in manhattan this is like this is no man's land you would never go here they said no you got to come here one night at lunch and then the next day i went to superiority burger on avenue a now when i was a kid avenue a b and c that was like you know it was worse than harlem i mean you get mugged if you go there this was the high superior burger is brooks headley he used to be a pastry chef for uh, really? mario uh, brooks is yeah and 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 I'm telling you, this is a vegan or not. And I think it's vegetable. I don't think it's vegan. But, you know, it was packed. I mean, it's like I couldn't believe it. So, look, I'm, you know, I, I'm of the belief that my era was certainly uh, in an earlier <laughs> couple of years ago. I still have great ideas. I still can do things. But I, I don't have that ego thing anymore. It's like it's like, you know, let somebody else uh, grab the mantle. And by the way, Chris, most of the people who wrote about me are dead. You know, it's like I just I, I was just at uh, Mimi Sheridan's funeral. Oh. You know, and I was one of the speakers. Uh, uh, my friend Alan Richmond is 79 years old. I mean, you know, Florence Fabric is like the only Gail, one around. Florence, all of it. Yeah. Oh, Gail's dead. You know, Gail was tremendous. I, I've been on Meals on Wheels for Meals on Wheels with Gail for years, 25 years at least. So, I mean, look, look I think that's the other thing. It's like if I'm Joe Biden, it's like, uh, you know, like I did what I did. I kept you away from. Donald Trump for four years. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make way for somebody else. Why somebody with a brain who he can, he trusts, doesn't somehow tell him that? I mean, of course we're gonna vote for him over Do Donald Trump. There's no question about that. But, 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 I mean, when you're 80, I mean, I, I saw. Listen, I saw guys in their 70s 
walking around the dining rooms of, of their of their restaurants with cigarettes in their hands. And I said, I will not be that person. And now I'm 67 and I'm close to being that person. And I'm 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 telling you on this podcast, I'm telling you, I'm not gonna be that person. That's it. <laughs> I'm getting out before, you know, I'm that person. So I, I want to talk just really quickly here about all the philanthropy that you've done over the years has been inspiring for so many. You've you've worked with so many, but I, I, I really just, you know, I want you to touch on that a little bit because, you know, food is transcends all boundaries, right? It transcends religion, politics, family feuds, and, and you have always recognized that from the moment you started your career. And right. I think things that you have put, you've put your eggs in baskets to, to help people. And I really think that's, you know, it's super important as the hospitality industry that we continue to give back. Um, right. And it is continuously asked of us, right? As the hospitality I, industry is like, well, it's, en- it's endless. It's endless, unfortunately, but listen, um, September there- 11th, you set up shop. I mean, you were feeding out everything you had in all the restaurants to people. I mean, that's just one little touch. Yeah. I mean, I well, that, that, that was a na- natural, that was a natural thing for us to do. Uh, my my chef of Tribeca at the time, Don Pintabona, had very good uh, relations with um, the, the 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 company that had these uh, um, ship cruises uh, uh, on the on the Hudson River, and and basically we transported the food down on these boats and served, you know, with Gray Coons and Danielle and John Joe. Everybody was there. Everybody did their part. But look, there isn't a bad charity. I, I don't know about you, but there aren't too many bad charities. Although once in a while you you read about something. So early on, you know, I. I I've been on the board, of, for instance, of Garden of Dreams. That's Madison Square Garden. Um, so I'm on the board of that with, you know, um, there's tremendous people on that board, like even Whoopi Goldberg, Matthew uh, uh, McConaughey, not McConaughey, the other Matthew, I forget his last name. Um, and a lot of the sports figures, John Starks, Adam Graves. But, um, and then Meals on Wheels, because my grandmother used to get Meals on Wheels. I started, you know, me and Charlie Palmer years ago, like 25 years ago, we've been that, in that one. But there really isn't anything that I turned my back on because, uh, you know, Mark Vetri does his lemonade stand and in, uh, in Philadelphia is a great event. And um, we basically, though, in the 90s, this idea of the food, uh, the restaurant people coming out and doing like a food event with stations, that was a novel idea. Today, it's like everyone does it. Yeah. But that was a novel idea. And, you know, where people could, you know, see the food of 20 uh, different restaurants. Um, we do CCAP every year. CCAP is uh, uh, these kids who are in high school and culinary uh, school. We place them in different uh, uh, restaurants. And that that's an, we just had that event at the South Streets, uh, at the um, Chelsea Piers. Um, I mean, it's on and on. Momentum Aids. And all these charities are just great. I just got the invitation for, uh, you know, the they call it the James Beard uh, celebration for um, City Meals on Wheels, and you know, Nobu's participating in that. So, look, like that's the easiest part of my job is to be philanthropic. That's all. It's gotten expensive, unfortunately. When workers go, they don't donate their services, so you have to pay people. Um, very few of these charities reimburse you for any of the costs. So, you know, and then we we do one actually at Tribeca Grill. Bruce Springsteen's uh, manager's daughter died of sarcoma cancer back in 92. And we've done that event for years. And, you know, Bruce shows up at the Tribeca Grill and that's always a kick in the butt. I mean, it's it's just a great event. So, yeah, a lot of philanthropic, a lot of charity, a lot of that. Awesome. So what's next for you, Drew? Retirement. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Honestly, honestly, like, you know, I'll ride Noble for a little longer. I'm trying to sell uh my interest in some of the other restaurants i think the time is the time has come where you know uh look i have some great i i you know it's not just bluster i i feel i could do a you know new york doesn't have a good deli you know and and many people say oh katz's you know you have katz's yeah katz's i mean was around when i was five years old and my father would take me to katz's and and if you go to katz's it's it's shtick but the bread is terrible. The pickles could be better. The meat's good. But I mean, I, I could do it. And you, you, you wait, you know, it, the, the service is horrendous. So so the point is, is like, you know, I think of like what I could do. And I could do, you know, I always wanted to do a Chinese restaurant. And then, 
you know, uh, un unfortunately, you know, Chinese food, people don't expect to spend a lot of money on Chinese food. So you can't elevate Chinese food to a point where somebody wants to pay $30 for an entree or something like that. So I've sort of given up that aspiration. But um, yeah, there's a lot of things I want. And then, Chris, we never spoke about it, but this is one of the great things that I've done, which is I do the hamburgers at Madison Square Garden for like 12 years. When they did a billion dollar uh, uh, reformation of the garden, they also reformed all the food stuff. So Carmel Andrew Carmelini did a sausage. Uh, uh, John George did a chicken hot dog uh, and tacos. Uh, uh, there's a lot of places, but they're all gone. I'm still there with the Daily Burger. And let me tell you something, Chris. My, my hamburger is so delicious. But, you know, it's like it, there's a few things that I do which make this hamburger different than everybody else's hamburger. And I worked at McDonald's in 1972 at when I was a student at Stuyvesant High School. I worked at the 23rd Street uh, McDonald's and I learned a lot at McDonald's, by the way. And I love McDonald's. I think McDonald's is a great place. Uh, but I learned so, literally like so many years later, I have my own hamburger at, you know, the greatest arena on God's creation, Madison Square Garden, which I'm going to go to tonight because the Knicks are playing uh, in the playoffs against the Cavaliers. Up uh, at Miami Heat, they beat the Cavaliers. You know a funny story, Drew, about Madison Square Garden? Originally, it was built for bicycle races. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So it used to be for the sixth day, which were fixed gear bikes, which, as okay. you know, messengers ride all around the city. And it was a velodrome. And they used to do six-day races and race around the velodrome. It was the number one betting thing done in its time. And then boxing moved in. And then the velodrome and all the, the, the cycling left. One of the, yeah, the, the most you're you're a big bicyclist. I know yeah. that. And but that was the original garden on 49th and 8th, I believe. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And you know what's funny is for folks who don't know this, the Chrysler is actually the last name of one of the winningest velodrome racers of its time. He took uh, all his winnings and started Chrysler vehicles. Wow, uh, that's amazing. So remember that when you're driving your Chrysler out there and you're trying to coal roll or run run a cyclist over, your car was hit. <laughs> Was Listen, I, I live where you hit him. Yeah, I live in a place about an hour drive from Manhattan called Piermont, New York, right on the Hudson River. And this is a bicyclist's haven. Like we have hundreds of bicyclists in the summer uh, up and down the roads here. This is a major. Even Daniel Hum, you know, the chef from yeah, Eleven Madison, of course, he bikes here, and uh, this is a major thoroughfare for bikers. Awesome. So, Drew, have you ever thought about mentoring next generation and like really kind of because that's the one thing, you know, I talk with Mark Miller about that a lot. There's never been that aspect of somebody who's been in the business for long periods of time, helping the next generation, you know, review contracts, negotiate leases. Have you ever thought about doing that? You know, I, I'll say this, Chris, and I don't want it to be sour grapes. Is like what I bemoan is how little people reach out to me. Like when people reach out to me, you know, like somebody has this concept or this idea or they're a student here or they're at Cornell or whatever, you know, but it's so, it's like, you know, I can count them on one hand. Whereas it's like when I was coming up, I'd call George Lang of Cafe Desertis and I'd call Jacques Pepin and, you know, and I I'd call these guys and we'd have lunch and what I could glean from them, it was like, you know, and they were, they were my mentors, you know, they, they, they didn't choose to be my mentor, but I, you know, I, I really sought out their counsel. So my point to you is what you're talking about, and especially Mark Miller, because he's brilliant. The guy is amazing. Um, Who yeah, I talk you know, every I, week, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I, I saw him actually at, um, at John Moody's wedding. Yeah. I saw him at John Moody. He looked good actually. Um, but, you know, you know, I, 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 I obviously agree with what you just said. It would it would probably be a very smart thing. I think that that and, and and you know, I think a lot of folks and I'm not quite sure why, because I reach out. I mean, God, Drew, you and I talk, you know, not an, often enough, but I think there's people. I think there's ego who gets in the way. I think right. there's fear of looking stupid. Right. Because they're afraid to ask the question. And I think, you know, that's an unfortunate part because you know, there's a lot to be learned uh, right there. And I think- Chris, Chris, I'll, I'll even I'll, I'll even go so far as this. Like, 
I'm, I'm eating at Tatiana, which uh, this was several months ago, but it was just named like the number one restaurant by Pete Wells, who's the food critic of the New York Times. And um, Kwame, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, but Kwame's last name. And so I, I look at the menu and at the end of the meal, you know, Kwame comes over and he's very pleasant. And I read Kwame's book. I think Josh David Stein wrote the book with Kwame. And I said, Kwame, can I give you one piece of advice? And he goes, yeah, yeah. What, what, what do you want to tell me? He said, you have no side dishes on the menu. I said, if you put side dishes on the menus, I swear to you, I swear to you, you'll you'll increase sales by at least $1,000 a night. So here, here's what I'm going to leave you with, Chris. I have no idea if, he's, if he did it or not. <laughs> but the point is, is that it's, it's like there's a there's a there's like endless lessons, and some are maybe big and and um, you know more important than others. But some are just like that, like like the one you know you just put a side dish on the menu. I, there's another restaurant called Claude. It's owned by a friend of mine. Well, I actually used to work at my wine store. I have a wine store as well. So. And I go for dinner there, and and not everyone would notice this, but you order chicken. Guess what? Chicken. There's no vegetable, no potato. You order fish, just fish. No vegetable, no potato. So there, they have side dishes: one side dish of potato and one side dish of rice. I'm still looking if there's a vegetable in the house. I don't know if there are any vegetables, <laughs> and yet, and yet they got three stars. You follow what I'm saying? So, so in other words, there's like little, like 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 if you have a professional eye. And you know, like this is nothing. This there's no effort whatsoever in making changes like side dishes or vegetables or whatever. You know, that that's that's things you can help people with. But honestly, people are not seeking out my advice. Let's put it that way. Well, that's a waste. They should. They should. In my, in my, in my personal opinion, I think that's a waste. Thank uh, you. Uh, so, Drew, we're gonna play a little game. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. No answers wrong. You ready to go? Yep. Coffee or tea? Tea. Um, coffee. Espresso or drip? Espresso. Nice. Sausage or bacon? Sausage. <clears throat> Pancakes, waffles? Pancakes. Taco, burrito? Uh, taco. Style of pizza? Oh, New York. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> 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 Nigiri sashimi. Oh, uh, sashimi. Sea urchin caviar. Caviar. Lobster crab. Crab. Dark spirits, white spirits. Uh, dark spirits. Red wine, white wine. White wine. Nice. Beef or pork? Uh, pork. Chicken or lamb? Always chicken. <laughs> I'm like Wade Boggs. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, man. Um, sorry, I just lost track here. Oof. Oh, uh, uh, pasta or noodles? Pasta. Dumpling, ravioli? Dumpling. Love it. Chocolate or fruit? Chocolate. There you have it. That's true. I mean... No, no equivocation. Very, you know, I mean, I like, I like bacon, but I eat more sausage and I, I like beef, but pork is the way to roll. <laughs> Drew, uh, thank you so much for taking time. I, I, you're super busy and I really appreciate um, it. I'm never busy for my, my main man, Chris. If you need anything down the road, don't hesitate. And I enjoyed uh, this uh, quite, quite as well. And I hope somebody listens to it. And I hope I get a little feedback. Uh, let me know when it's going to uh, air. Of course, of course. And everybody, make sure you go check out Nobu. Check out Drew, man. This guy has done so much for so many and continues to do so. Uh, he's shaped and inspired not only my career, but so many others. Uh, folks, thank you so much.